but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. TBS 299, one away from our triple century, one away from entering our Brian Lara era. <laughs> uh, I And 299 times that you've opened the episode the same way, I think. No, you've done like <laughs> no. 30 of them. No, lately there hasn't been a lot of variety. I mean, my bandwidth just does not allow for creativity mm-hmm. in that regard. Okay. Hello, everybody, guys. Hola, toros. Wow. What? You can't be using hola, toros on a day where we got an hola, <laughs> yeah, toros. Yeah, we got an hola, toros with some very bad news. We'll get to that later on. We will start in Monte Carlo. Andre Rublev, a very popular player amongst his peers, is now the winner of a Masters 1000 title. He beat Demon Twink. Five seven six two seven five. <laughs> Can I say that? Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't like. I don't think it's body shaming, right? No. Okay. Mm. Just want to be careful these mm. days, you know. Hmm. It's more to do with him doing too much all the time. Oh yeah, definitely get the demonic part. Well, there's a, a very specific <laughs> cultural reference. <laughs> Oh yeah, you uh, told me the uh, what the etiology of mm. the the demon twink, the origin story. What is it? It's oh, not fit can't... for air. Oh, okay, okay, never mind. <laughs> but folks can look it up. It's, it's just a, a funny term. <laughs> As I mentioned, this is Andre's first Masters title. He's been a runner-up three times now, uh, twice in 2021 in Monte Carlo and Cincinnati. And he's gained this reputation, unfortunately, for being a player. Well, he was a runner-up twice. Yes, this is his third final. Third final. Third final and first win. He's gained a reputation for being a player who can't finish at the end, right? He's stumbled at the quarterfinal stage of majors a bunch of times. And he hadn't, before this, won a, a 1,000 title. He was kind of the 500 king for a while. And it's important to remember that he's still young. Like, he's still early to mid-20s. Tsitsipas called him a player with few tools recently, and it seemed to light a fire under his ass. Tsitsipas has since taken it back, by the way. He retracted. (laughs) After he was defeated at one of his most successful tournaments as the defending champion, there was an outpouring of support from Rublev's peers. He is clearly a very popular and well-liked player. He seems to be extremely adored on tennis Twitter. And he just pumps out the the good-natured content. He went to Daniel Medvedev's baby's baptism as the godfather wearing ripped-up jeans. Loved it. He had a, a boyfriend's video with Grigor Dimitrov, which we'll talk about in a moment. But this is just an exciting development for, for me. I've liked Ruby for a long time, and I'm, I was, like, waiting for, for the next step. Mm-hmm. Now, question for you. You mentioned that this is, what, his 13th career title? 
Did we even say that? I yet? didn't mention that. No. So this is his thirteenth career title. Who are the top ten ATP active title leaders? Oh, you're you're quizzing me right now. Yes, I'm quizzing you. Okay, so there's Djokovic and Nadal. Ninety-three and ninety-two. Murray. Mm-hmm. He's number three. There's of course Medvedev and Zverev. Zverev at five with nineteen. Medvedev. Uh, maybe they're tied. I don't know when this list was created. So oh, okay. they're there. They're in the middle. Okay. Um, who else is there? Probably Stan Varenka. Yes. Stan has 16. Uh, Casper Ruud? No. No. <laughs> what does he have? Like 10? <clears throat> That's not enough? No. Okay. So the last three at 8, 9, and 10 all have 16. 16? Uh, I don't know if Tsitsipas has 16. No. Okay. <laughs> there, I think there's some older people I'm I'm forgetting. John yeah. Isner? Yes, Ugh. 16. Uh-huh. Um... I'm gonna I'm gonna retire there. You're gonna retire. Yeah, Gasquet has 16. Oh, along with Isner and Bavrinka, Dominic Team has 17. Oh man, and Marin Cilic has 20. He's the fourth highest title winner currently on the ATP okay. tour. Sorry, Marin. If you if I had more time, I felt very pressured. If you I, had more time, I could have I could have thought of more. I could do better. <laughs> Uh, a lot of the the writing and the conversation around this final was uh, the youth of Runa against the experience of Rublev. Rublev has the experience, but hasn't always been able to connect, to put those together. They're both very emotional players. And in this final, it felt like Rublev finally was the one to to control his emotions better. Right? He faced adversity. He lost the first set won the second, and then he went down 1-4, love 30, in the third set. He was a point away from going down 5-1 in the third set. And for somebody who's shown such mental fragility in the past to overcome a situation like this, uh, it, it's big for Rublev. It is. And this time it was Holger's chance to kind of show his age right for such a great player for a creative player uh and a, and such an explosive one physically and emotionally he got down on himself when he was really still in a very good position to win after losing that big lead in the third set he was the one to get very frustrated and to start showing a lot of negative emotion on court and that really gives your opponent kind of an in even if they're still down two four have we been lied to by Holger? I what? thought that he and Moratoglu split. Or maybe this split just hasn't happened yet, that it's imminent. But I saw video of the players getting ready to come on court, and Patrick was back there with him, and he was also at matches. So I don't know what's going on with that. When did they say they were splitting? I don't remember that. It was a whole thing. Really? Yeah, the same day. You think I can remember the movements in the Marataglu camp? No, it was a thing on the show because it happened right before Coco Goff announced that she was splitting with her coach. And the worry that we talked about on the show was that things were being lined oh. up for Coco to go to Marataglu. Oh, okay. 
there were also, I mean, how many times have we heard that Simona has presented her case and proven her innocence and will be getting back with Patrick? There's a lot of delusional fan theories on tennis Twitter. Aspirational? Sure. That's a much better way to say it. Thank you. Meanwhile, Monte Carlo stays being one of, if not the most beautiful stops on the tours. Period. Point blank. Like, that is a tournament I want to go to at some point. It's one of the oldest sites on tour. Yep. The tournament was founded in 1896. It's actually the seventh oldest existing tennis tournament. What's the oldest? Well, you know the oldest. The oldest is Wimbledon. Followed by the U.S. Championships and the Canadian Open, Mm. which used to take place in Rosedale, Toronto. Other things of note in Monte Carlo, Djokovic suffered a not-so-great loss to Musetti, and it becomes clear that he might be dealing with a recurrence of the elbow injury again. Yes, he's been wearing the sleeve, he's taken off the sleeve... He's clearly having some issues with the elbow. In press, he's optimistic, says it's not going to be a huge issue going forward, but that's, of course, what athletes are wont to say. He struggled in a three-set match today in his own tournament in Serbia Open. Uh, We shall see. It's not looking great for him or Nadal, but Djokovic has battled through injury before, of course, many times. Holger beats Sinner in the semifinals. We're seeing Yannick make championship weekend at tournaments repeatedly week after week regardless of the surface that was uh a not so friendly drive-by shake of of hands at the net in that match in the other semi rublev beat taylor fritz another player who seems to be making the back end of tournaments regardless of surface he's the one who knocked out the defending champion stefanos in straight sets and Kasper Ruud was out in round three to Jan Leonard Struff. Right. It seemed that maybe Kasper had righted the ship a few weeks ago when he won that title. However, he's since lost early in Monte Carlo and now again losing early this week. Mm-hmm. No doubt you heard about a dust-up between Medvedev and Zverev. This happened after their match in Monte Carlo. Medvedev survived this match somehow, 3-6, 7-5, 7-6. Uh, Zverev served for the match twice in the second and the third set. He had match points twice on serve in the third set tiebreak. And he only hit four double faults throughout the entire match to still lose from those winning positions. Made him very salty, obviously. He was particularly salty about Medvedev's bathroom break. And you have here noted that, quote, proves that his delusional era is not an era. It's a way of life. I thought that was funny. In press, Zverev says, quote, He's one of the most unfair players in the world. I take fair play and sportsmanship very serious. He does not. Now, mind you, this is the same dude who just over a year ago whacked a tennis umpire's chair and also grazed his foot with his lumberjacking. Yes, in a doubles match. A lot of people pointed that out to him. This bathroom break he was mad about, uh, it was sanctioned. Bernardes told Daniel that he could go, and he arrived back on the court before the time ran out. So it does feel like a bit of sour grapes. And Daniel even gave him 
sort of that leeway after the match saying, you know, everybody feels a little bit sore after they lose. And maybe this is just a temporary thing. Maybe he doesn't mean all of this. But if he does, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) This was juicy. Medvedev said, quote, Sasha is living in his own world. I already had like five players in the locker room coming to me and saying, come on, Daniel, why are you so unfair? When he says someone is not fair play, you're like, okay, great. Look at yourself in the mirror. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I thought you said you'd never sing on this show. Oh, that wasn't like real singing. Mm. Daniel, he, as you know, he is a very, uh, what's the, how would you describe his tone in press? He's very even keeled. Right? He's never yelling. It's very straightforward, delivered in a straight tone. But he was kind of savage for this. Like, he he had a lot he needed to get out, clearly. He mentioned players who he perhaps had wronged in the past and forgave him. <laughs> he even mentioned an incident at ATP Cup against Diego Schwartzman and said that Diego has really every right to be mad at him and he feels a kind of way that Diego probably still doesn't like him. But he said that is not Sasha. Sasha is not in that category of player. But what's the context here? There is more to this story. There's more to this friction between the two and it stems from what we believe and what many people believe is the relationship between Medvedev's wife and Olya Sharapova, who accused Zverev, credibly, of domestic abuse. Those two, at one point, maybe still are very good friends. Yes. After the accusations came out toward the end of 2020, Zverev began mentioning Daniel's wife in trophy presentation speeches. At the Paris Masters in 2020, he said, quote, To your team, to your wife... We've all known each other since we were 10 years old. It's great the journey we're having, and I hope it continues. Again, at the ATB Finals in 2021, he said, quote, Dasha, you've been with Daniil for a very long time. We know each other for 10 plus years. It's great to see how far we came together. In the context of Dasha and Olia being close friends, and Olia just publicly accusing him of intimate partner violence, the appearance of Dasha's name, Daniel's wife, in these trophy speeches was alarming, and people noticed it right away. If none of this context had existed, it would have been nothing, right? It would have been, oh, these players, they must have been friends growing up, they played in juniors together, it's cool to see even your colleagues or acquaintances make good, you know, and grow up through the tennis world. But that's not exactly what's happening here. It came off as sinister, as a way to put this woman's name in your mouth to gain some of that credibility, to say, oh, we're friends. Look, you know, I've been friends with the Medvedevs for a long time, and this is not a thing. I've been accused falsely. And now, after this match, Daniil makes it clear that, look, buddy, we are not friends. We've never really been friends. So I don't know what you've been going on about. He says, quote, We were never really close friends, only in juniors. That's only him in his congratulations speeches saying something like he was friends with me and my wife, which is definitely not the case since long time. I never said this. Uh, yeah, I 
you know, I was surprised that he was so crystal clear about this because we had heard Zverev say these things in speeches and wondered what the hell must Daniel think about this? And I'd, we weren't super clear on what their relationship even was. They certainly didn't seem buddy-buddy on court, but we had known that they went back a ways in juniors. Daniel seems much closer with the other Russians, Andre and Karen. But to hear him say this so bluntly that we are not friends, uh, that he doesn't like Zverev mentioning his wife in these trophy speeches. Keep my wife's name out of your mouth. That's really, really what it was. And I'm glad he did it because now it puts those victory speeches into stark relief. It makes it crystal clear mm-hmm. to me what was going on back then. Because they were not friends. So why is he doing this? No. And I remember watching them and I said sinister and I mean that exactly how it's intended. Like it it gave me this gross feeling in the pit of my stomach when he would do those things. Because it felt like someone trying to cover his behavior or fix his reputation. Well, today was that guy's birthday mm-hmm. on his home court in Munich. And he lost to Christopher O'Connell in straight sets. If you recall, this is his fucking court. His words, not mine. Uh, he's having a horrible year, and may it continue. He's, the next three tournaments, he's got the majority, the large majority of his ranking points to defend. And if he don't do it, then wow. On to greener pastures. We've got some great social content from the ATP, more specifically, Grigor and Andre. Being besties, boyfriends, training partners. In love. It was actually very cute. I like when straight men can show affection and not be all like no homo about it. Mm-hmm. And I know there, there are cultural differences. You know, European standards for male physical affection are different. The setup here is that they're in Monte Carlo and they're doing this promo thing for the tour, for tennis whereby Andre and Grigor play a super tiebreak against each other using equipment from bygone eras. So they have all these cards and they get to pick one, which decade they're going to be playing tennis against each other with. If I recall correctly, Rublev picks the 80s and Grigor has to play with a 1950s wooden racket. <laughs> oh, against the, the uh, 80s steel yes. titanium? And Grigor won. Wow. He seems like a player who would be able to thrive with the old equipment. But Andre, I mean, they were so close. He said, I, you know, I've fallen in love. And Grigor kind of looked at the camera and was like, yeah, not not surprising at all to me. <laughs> I've, I've heard it all before. <laughs> it's just very cute. And how quickly the tables turned because Grigor was then shortly thereafter the victim of a robbery. Uh, yeah. And listen how they did it. I, this is kind of ingenious, to be honest. He was driving in Barcelona. Somebody came up and knocked his side view mirror off. And as he reached out with his arm to look at it or fix it or whatever, somebody came up and snatched the watch off of his wrist. Now, that's what he said happened. And it does kind of sound like a movie, right? But, I mean, the the pickpockets and thieves are very creative. It was a $76,000 watch. I am going to hazard a guess and say it was insured 
or it was a sponsored watch or both. I mean, either way, it's not a fun thing to go through. No, definitely not fun. He said, you know, he's fine. It, he's happy. It wasn't worse. Nobody was hurt. It sucks. Thanks for your concern. There were no women's tournaments last week, except for the Billie Jean King Cup, formerly Fed Cup. And dear listeners, we did not pay attention. <laughs> there's there's no more pretending about this. Davis Cup and Billie Jean King Cup are just not really things that we get up for. And we've explained why before. Like the the team competition under the guise, the pretext, the pretense mm-hmm. of playing for country. It's it's so nineteen fifty for me. Yeah, it. I mean, <laughs> these things were invented in the early twentieth century when there were still like literal old world empires. You know, when only the world superpowers were winning. It made sense in the... I mean, not made sense, but it lasted through the Cold War era. I just... I am not really attached to nationalistic competitions. I'm not a very patriotic person for either country that I've lived in. Unless it's the West Indies cricket team or the Jamaican track and field team. That's it. (laughs) Now that's different. (laughs) Because it's okay to root for underdogs. Well... They're not not really underdogs, but a small country (laughs) that achieves... much more than its population and funding and all those things. Okay, n- nice comeback there. You <laughs> caught yourself. I say take the flag out of it. I'm all for team competitions. Take the flag out of it and make it fun. Like, I I don't know. It's If you enjoy it, more power to Oh, yeah. But I, I think this is one of those instances where we're going to have to pawn this coverage off to other tennis podcasts. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, the anger about certain players, like not wanting to play for their country, I that is not something I'm going to hold against anybody, really. Like this is, you are a singles tennis player. You are the product. You are the company. Play where it makes sense for you. Like, do you want to go and play Fed Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, or do you want to go to Carnival in Jamaica? <laughs> Slow, wow. Sloan? I'm saying live your life. Yeah. How many pockets in the calendar throughout the course of a year do you really get to take four or five days for yourself? Mm-hmm. It was really just a weekend she was in Jamaica for, and that was it. And then she was back on the court on Monday, Tuesday. Yep. She said it was a great 48 hours in Jamaica. Now she's back. The big tournament this week on the women's side is Stuttgart which is a 500 tournament. It is very popular among the players, but it is, you have to say, such an odd event. It's part of the European clay swing, but it's indoors. Indoor clay plays so differently from everywhere else. Uh, A lot of the players who like fast surfaces will excel here, and they play well into the night, which is also unusual for most of these European clay tournaments. I mean, it's indoors. Yes, yes. I feel like we've kind of been tough on this tournament over the years. Have we? Like that it doesn't make sense for those reasons. <laughs> but I don't, I mean, I'm at a point now where it's it's just a cool event. Also, you have to save energy to fight the real enemy, which of course is Madrid. Yes. And the, as I said, the players seem to love it here. So if you love it, I love it. And It's that easy? Well, no, but in this case it is. <laughs> because you get a great draw here. 
you get you really get a super stack drop. Sure, but there are reasons for that even yes. more so now, which we'll get into in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Arena Sabalenka has made six quarterfinals in six tournaments she's played in 2023. She beat Krejcikova yesterday in straight sets. Ugh. Listen to this. Krejcikova has lost to Sabalenka in three straight tournaments. And the tournament before that, which is Dubai, where she won, she had to beat Sabalenka to win the tournament. Not in the final. But uh, by the um, some law of some logic thing, if Sabalenka is not in the tournament, Krejcikova will win. Right? Does that hold? Pro- no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. But it is just surprising that they had four straight meetings. They played four times in less than two months. Mm-hmm. We had a hell of a match yesterday between Ons Jabir and Yelena Ostapenko. Mm-hmm. Crazy stuff. Like the first set and up to 5-3 in the second, Ostapenko could do no wrong. Like... She was in full Ostapenko mode. And then, serving for the match at 5-4, Ons breaks back. Wins the second set 7-5, eventually taking it 6-3 in the third. And, maybe the biggest achievement of them all, managed to secure, I should say, wrestle a hug from Ostapenko at net. (laughs) That was so funny. She wins it on an ace, they walk to the net, Ostapenko sticks her hand out to shake, and Ons is like, no, come here. Come here, honey. Gives her a big hug. Sviantek won her first match in her title defense today. She plays Pliskova in the quarterfinals. Jabor takes on Hadad Maya, Potapova against Caroline Garcia, and Paula Badosa against Sabalenka. Badosa, who is playing lights out tennis right now. Yeah, she really, she's finally on the upswing after missing the Australian Open. She made the quarters in Charleston. She beat Dasha Kazakina here. 6-1, 6-1. Yeah. Karolina Pliskova beat Sakari and Vekic and now has to face Iga in Iga's second match. Now here comes another quiz for you. Are you ready? Uh, well, I wasn't, but okay. So we're in Stuttgart right now for the WTA Tour. Can you name the last 10 winners of this tournament? What? The last 10 winners of Stuttgart? Just off off the top of my head? Uh, yeah, or as close as you can to doing it. Okay, I think, Sabalenka, one, I think Sabalenka won recently. There's one person, there are two people in that stretch who've won twice. Mm-hmm. From so, 2013 to 2022, four of those titles were won by two women. Okay, okay. so I think Sabalenka won recently. Sabalenka no. has not won oh, this no, tournament. Oh, no, no, that was Madrid. Jabor? Jabor has not won this oh, tournament. Oh, fuck. Really? Nope. Uh, Sviantek? Yeah, well, she's a defending <laughs> champion, yes. Uh, I know Masha Sharapova has a few Porsches. Yes, she won she's 13, 14, and she had also won 12, but we're not going mm-hmm. back that far. I want to say Petra Kvitova. That's correct. Petra won in 2019. Um, Think about the 2021 winner. There was no tournament held in 2020. Mm-hmm. In 2021, this person won both the singles and doubles title. And it presented a bit oh. of a of a, an issue because she was car-sponsored by somebody other than Porsche. Uh, okay, I, I don't know. Um, Ash Barty? Yes. Okay, I vaguely remember that. 
Now don't talk through. Let me think. Okay, you fine. You just keep oh my God. yappa yappa yappa. Okay. <laughs> um, who else? Karolina Pliskova. Yes, twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many is how many titles is that? Well, now you only have two more players to name. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of them won it in back to back years, in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen. But I'll shut up because I'm yappa yappa. Mm-hmm. Um. Wow. Who is doing it? Uh, Azarenka? Nope. No. No, she was pregnant by that time in 2016. Uh, said Sharapova. Uh, Simona Halep? No. Oh, shit. I don't know. A multiple-time Grand Slam winner. Oh, dear. <laughs> who is not on tour currently, but plans to come back. Uh, pregnant Kerber? Yes. <laughs> okay. In 2015, See, 2016. See, with the clues. I'm good with the clues, you know. But you told me to shut up. I know, I know. I was I was resigned to not getting all of them. Mm-hmm. It was fine. And the last one is an absolute menace. Wait, there's more? The last person is an absolute menace. The title winner in 2017, who is often bandaged, strapped for the gods, and has oh. often displayed oh. questionable... Alize Cornet. Not that one. Oh. <laughs> uh, she has been severely injured in the past. Extremely injured? Like... Off the tour for a while. Mm, I don't know. A German player to win on home soil. Oh, Sabina Lasicki. No. <laughs> uh, Petkovic. Curly hair, blonde, Siegemund. dirty blonde. Yes. Siegemund. Yes. Yes, okay. I went through all the Germans. Steffi Graf. Wow. <laughs> Anka Huber. Wow. <laughs> when you I know, tell it you... Was, it was a struggle. I, that wasn't my best performance. When I tell you... I mean, I would have struggled similarly... When tennis results happen, I forget them almost immediately. Uh, for real. No, but I, people are listening and they're probably like, y'all have a podcast and you don't know that. Mm, well, you don't know the curly-haired German who won in 2017? Are you stupid? Well, start your own podcast <laughs> and do better. <laughs> we mentioned a little while ago on this episode that there was no women's tournament last week running alongside... Fed Cup, which I don't think is unusual in most years, but there's at least like lower level tournaments. And we've seen this year in particular, there have been stretches where the men will have four tournaments one week where the the women will have one. There's a definite imbalance. And there are reasons for this that were very well delineated by Tamani Cariel in his piece for The Guardian recently. And this dovetails with our next segment where we talk about the news that the WTA will be heading back to China this fall. Was that a sufficient setup? Yeah. So Tamani used Stuttgart as a way in to talk about the scarcity of WTA tournaments, especially for players who are outside of that top tier. So Stuttgart is great for the tour because it it brings top players together in a very tight draw, a smaller draw. There are a lot of marquee matches throughout the week, at the same time, you have top 100 players jamming up ITF events. They're right. really meant for players ranked lower. So you have someone ranked as high as Marie Boskova, who's in the 30s, playing an ITF event. You have players scrambling to get into the qualifying draws to that or to Stuttgart. And it's just unfortunate if you're not part of that top tier. It's such a small draw where top 24 players get direct entry into it. When this happens, say, for example, this week in Barcelona, 
you still have some of the very top names being plucked to go somewhere else. Yes. They can be swayed via money or influence to go play somewhere else because there are options. Here, all the top women want to and need to play this tournament. So there's no room for... There's no flexibility, really. Right. And the story outlines, you know, a few of the reasons why there's a lack of playing opportunities. This week, there happened to be another tournament scheduled in Turkey, which had suffered a devastating earthquake. Tournament was canceled. But of course, there is a larger problem outside of that. The 250 events are run locally, like like a small business. The WTA does provide support, but at the same time, the governing bodies are investing a ton of money into some of the 1,000-level tournaments and making them even bigger and longer. For right? example, the upcoming tournaments in Madrid and Rome, right. which will now be two-week tournaments a la Indian Wells and Miami. So there's less money and attention devoted to supporting the smaller tournaments, the 250-level. And why that becomes something to talk about with this decision to to go back to China by the WTA is... Although they didn't state it at all, this is a money decision. Right. The boycott of China, had it gone on into this year when playing in China was actually a legitimate possibility, it had the effect of crippling the WTA financially and also just removing a lot of playing opportunities from the calendar. If you haven't read John Wertheim's mailbag that came out today, I believe, he does an excellent job of describing all the considerations and ways to look at this decision. Mm -hmm. Some of the background is that in 2021, Steve Simon announced that the WTA would be boycotting China, would not be honoring their commitments by playing tournaments there when that option became available after their zero COVID policy went away because of the accusation by Peng Shui accusing a former vice premier of China of sexual assault and really like trigger warning rape. I don't want to sugarcoat what she accused this person of. That year it was moot. You know, it was a it was a gesture because it wasn't possible to play in China. I think I may have spread some fake news inadvertently <laughs> recently. During 2022, China still had a zero covid policy, so it wasn't really feasible to play in the most recent fall even though they hosted an Olympics at the beginning of the year, that was kind of a unique exception to the zero-COVID policy. In December, China stopped its zero-COVID policy, and so sports leagues can start playing there. I understand when people are dis disappointed, disgusted with Steve Simon and the WTA for this decision. I get it, mm. because this was posited as a moral decision that was made. It was a moral decision that was always going to come with extreme financial fallout if their demands were not met. And the likelihood of those demands being met from the jump were next to nothing. Right. And it became even more difficult when the IOC threw the entirety of its weight behind China to obscure and make this an even more difficult mountain to climb for the WTA. Do you remember when that happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, they facilitated these propaganda exercises. They brought Peng Shui out during the Olympics to assure everybody that 
she was safe and doing well. She had, she'd withdrawn her accusation at that point. And when you have arguably, arguably the most powerful sporting entity working against you, when you <laughs> right. have your brother organization in the ATP not standing in step with you. Mm-hmm. They wanted no part of it. So it's hashtag Tennis United when it works for them. This becomes a story where, yes, the WTA reneged. Yes, the WTA looks like a clown organization to a degree because of this. Especially when they're not being upfront about what's really going on with the money part of it, right? Yes, that is all true. But so many people and organizations had an opportunity to take a stand alongside them to buttress their efforts to make their stance firmer in this just Herculean attempt to hold China accountable. This like David and Goliath thing. And they were left dangling by themselves. And John Wertheim makes a very good point in his mailbag today when he says the WTA kind of set themselves up to look really bad with egg on their face with this when they put everything on China. When they said, unless you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, then we will not. Had they said, we are going to conduct our own investigation. We're going to do things on our, our terms. Mm. We are going to, we're going to have the ball in our court. Then they could now come forward today and say, well, we did this, 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 this. This is what we couldn't do because of so and so and so and so. And these are the reasons why we took this decision now. Yeah. It still wouldn't have been ideal or perfect. But from a PR perspective, it would have been a lot easier to swallow this decision. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, I don't really get PR machinations. Like, my brain doesn't really work that way, I don't think. But the point is that Steve Simon made some very ambitious demands. Uh, I mean, fair demands, but ones that you knew at the moment he uttered them would never be fulfilled, right? The two big ones were a chance for someone from the WTA Tour to meet directly with Peng Shui, and two, a full and transparent investigation into Peng's accusations. That was never going to happen. Because what is, what's their leverage? Why would the government of China grant these? What are they losing? You know, they're of course they're losing money from the tournaments, but the WTA stands to lose infinitely more. And so I understand the frustration that, you know, people are saying, so you boycott one country and the tour literally can't survive? Yeah, that sucks. Like, that's probably a bad business decision. Decision. Uh, it's a shitty situation to be in. But here, this is where we are. It was always, for me, going to come down to contracts. I don't know what those contracts are with the Chinese government, with these Chinese tournaments, but my rudimentary knowledge of contracts tells me that you can't just break a contract without consequence. <laughs> no. And so I think that that's, that was a missed opportunity to actually speak to that part of it. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, that's something that I think people can understand. Like, you actually can't just break a contract because you have a moral problem with what's going on. Unfortunately, you know, they, the WTA was legitimate in their grievances, but you you just can't break this contract without risking the loss of millions of dollars. Right. It also was not unforeseen that something like this could happen. We've known for many, many, many years 
the human rights violations and atrocities that happen in China. Yet, the WTA went into business with them and made a huge, huge to-do about that largest ever prize pot at the WTA championships that then precipitated the ATP saying, well, we're going to top that. Mm -hmm. That was a, a Shenzhen 2019, I think. And they were offering something like $14 million. And the ATP did one of those prices right things. Like, mm -hmm. no, I'm going to give $14 million and $1. It was so transparent, right? Right. But my point is, this should also serve as a lesson to sporting leagues about what it's like, what are the potential pitfalls in getting into bed with certain business partners. <laughs> yes. And it's getting worse, not better. Right, like golf is going to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is perhaps liberalizing. I mean, that's what they want us to think. Sports washing can be extremely effective. I think we kind of buried the lead here. The actual news was that Steve Simon announced this week that the WTA will indeed be going back to China this year. The WTA finals will happen in China per the contract. And he said the decision was made with input from both player and tournament representatives. And I think there was a lot of movement behind the scenes to get them to return. There was financial pressure, and it seemed like the players wanted to go back to. Because on a week-to-week -week basis, we're seeing, despite that, what is that, capital investment thing that they signed? Oh, yeah, the CVC partnership. Like, there's... There's financial problems. Like, the schedule itself tells us that. Right. Not just right. that there's no fall schedule yet up until this week, but the schedule that we were given and have lived through thus far has been wholly inadequate. Mm -hmm. So Simon said that he, quote, received assurances from people close to Peng that she is safe and she's living in Beijing with family. The Chinese Tennis Association assured the WTA that there, quote, won't be any issues with our athletes or our staff while they're competing within the region. <laughs> that's that's comforting, isn't it? What do you mean, issues? What could those be? <laughs> that was weird to include that in the statement. You know, at the end of the day, the WTA did not get what they demanded. And they were never going to. They had no leverage to demand those things. Uh, and here we are. I don't know how to feel. Like, I, like you said, I understand people who are extremely frustrated by the decision. From a pure dollars and cents standpoint, I get it. I also do not believe that this was grandstanding, that this was just posturing. I don't think it was I, because I think they risked a lot yeah. by making that statement, even if they couldn't play there. I really believe it was a, a good faith attempt by Steve Simon and the WTA to defend and protect its player and set a standard that this is what we'll do for all our players. Because if you think it was virtue signaling, they didn't get anything out of it. You know, like, where was the benefit? A couple of Novak Djokovic tidbits. He is one of the very few tennis personalities who have paid for their blue check mark <laughs> that we found out today. <laughs> it's 420. Uh, what does Sharice on Twitter, what does she call musk? Elongated musket. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So elongated musket decided that today was a day when people who were previously verified with their blue checks would have to start paying the $8 in order to keep it. And practically everybody has 
has abandoned it. I mean, NPR has left the platform altogether because the labeling system is ridiculous and not even based on fact. There are so many bugs on the the app that I don't even trust that the blue checks are real or who knows that the people even paid for their blue checks. It could be there by accident. There have been so many problems with mm. the app. Anyway. But as of this recording, that's what's been the case, okay? <laughs> that's not the, the lead. No. That's not the news. The Serbia Open has is happening again, but it has moved to Banja Luka, Bosnia. And now it's called the Srpska Open. Republika Srpska is a part of Bosnia. This is the tournament that the Djokovic family owns. Djokovic has, you know, played it before and won it before. Rublev played here last year as well, uh, despite training in Barcelona. I, th- I thought that was interesting because he lives and trains in Barcelona, I believe. It's happening the same week, but he's going to Bosnia instead. The next highest ranked player in the field is George, who is ranked 21. Mm-hmm. So Barcelona is an old, respected tournament. It's a 500. They're getting most of the top players. But in the in a, the past few years, the Serbia Open draw has been nothing to sniff at. You know, Djokovic's name draws a lot. It's just like, it's hilarious to me that an active tennis player can play at an event that his family owns. It's just a ridiculous thing about tennis. Even though they own it, he said today was the, possibly the slowest conditions he's ever played in. Mm. And he did not like it. So they did not engineer the court for him. Some quick bites here. Conchita Martinez announced that she and Garbinia Muguruza have split. This is something that we've speculated on. You all have speculated on. Some of you have been calling for it for a long time, and it has come to pass. Yeah. The hard truth is that if your player is not playing, then you need to be released to go get a job somewhere else. Right? Garbinia is, is off the tour and she hasn't announced exactly when she's coming back, you can't stick around and wait. I mean, you could. Well, you could. If you're I mean, a retainer, I if, don't know. If you don't need the money, I don't know. But Or maybe you get paid to stay at home. Sure. But it sounds like Garbinia told her, you know, spread your wings and fly. Or maybe Conchita asked. <laughs> <laughs> a few injury updates. Matteo Berrettini had to withdraw from Monte Carlo due to a grade two internal oblique tear. Yeah, that's not good. No. This close to Roland Garros? Grade one? Maybe. Maybe. Is one better than two? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The big injury news, of course, is Rafa Nadal uh, posted, uh, hello, everybody, guys. Hola, todos. It was an Instagram post uh, in Spanish, actually, announcing that he's withdrawing from Madrid. We knew about Barcelona. Now he's withdrawn from Madrid. Today's update, uh, there is no sugarcoating. It was extremely discouraging for Nadal fans. He said that what was originally prescribed to be a six to eight week recovery period is now into week 14 and the injury has not healed. As far as he and his team are concerned, the treatment has not worked, period. Mm -hmm. And so they are trying alternative methods right now. We've seen him training. There's been video of him training. Right, but it was nothing close to full tilt training. No, no. Uh, and you know what an Adal training session looks <laughs> yeah, like. His practices are very, very intense. I don't know. You wonder what kind of medical advice he was getting. How did it go from a six to eight week recovery to now 
it's been months and the thing is not even healed right we everybody's body is different the nature of that injury i don't think it's one that's guaranteed to be better in six to eight weeks it's likely maybe and his body just didn't respond all right i'm skeptical he said he wants to give himself a chance to play in some of the remaining clay tournaments but it's very up in the air to me it's does not sound good for any any of the clay tournaments in better news Hyun Chung will be back in singles for the first time in, uh, what, three years? Yeah. Next week in Korea, playing, I believe, a challenger tournament. He returned last year to play a spot of doubles, but this will mm-hmm. be his first time playing on his own, first time being out here on his own. <laughs> All we do is pop ballad references, really. <laughs> R.I.P. Irene Cara. And good news for Bianca Andrescu. She suffered what appeared to be a traumatic injury. For the fans, it was traumatic. It was tough to watch. But it's not really as bad as it looked and felt no, to her. Because she was out here supporting her BJK Cup sister. Mm-hmm. Her Canada girlies. And they won. Her Canada the- geese. No? Geese? Really? (laughs) No. I don't... No. That was a very (laughs) Canada-specific reference that (laughs) did not work. I retract. (laughs) But she's going to be playing in Madrid. That's the plan. So that's good news for her. We know how well she was playing when she got injured again. So hopefully this does not set her back too much. Mm -hmm. I will say the woman has a remarkably good attitude. The, The very next day after that horrible injury, she was like, Hey guys, um... You know, she's on Instagram. Thank you so much. It was a real trauma and the worst pain I've ever felt in my life, but I'm grateful and I'll be back soon. It was like, how are you so optimistic? This next bit is for you and for a lot of Serena fans. Not for me. This is for you as well. She doesn't fool me. Oh, come on. Right, but you have been pining for... A comeback. Of course I want a comeback, but I know it's not going to happen. Oh, I, I, Ms. Don't, I don't the, know if that's clear. The youngest Williams cannot fool me. She is a known liar. Listen, we can't be falling for Serena's social media posts anymore. It just, it needs to stop. <laughs> like, every so often she pops up on a tennis court in her gear, and she looks. she's looking great. She's looking fit. Mm-hmm. And she's playing a spot of tennis. She's doing that. Doing that. She had the patch on on her cheek. That she was wearing uh, for the last spell of her career. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, she's gearing up. She, Mama's coming she's back. She's taking it. <laughs> it's always for Nike or Gatorade or the migraine commercial. She gets on a tennis court for money, for a sponsorship these days. Also, should she just never play tennis for fun again? <laughs> I know. Like, yeah. She's not going to... She shouldn't be expected to just stop playing tennis to the point where... Every time you see her playing tennis, it's like, oh, she must be coming back. Mm-hmm. We've got not one, but two tennis films to look forward to. Yeah, this Zendaya tennis film, I'm really looking forward to because it could be a hot mess. It's by Luca Guaranino, who is the director of Call Me By Your Name. He did a remake of Suspiria. He did that HBO show, We Are Who We Are. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called, right? It's rated R, and Josh O'Connor, is that his name? Yes. Josh O'Connor Prince is in Charles. it. Prince Charles. Mike, so, uh, Mike Faced from West Side Story as well. 
so because of who the director is and because Joshua Connor is in it, the girlies on the internet were like, oh, well, we know there's going to be peen. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I wonder if that's the first occurrence of that word on this podcast. I'm just glad that Guadagnino is working with actors over the age of 18 now. Mm. Can I say that? Uh, Zendaya, apparently, according to Luca, is very good. And they used minimal doubling in her tennis scenes. Oh, That's what he said. I mean, this could all be just promo for the movie. I mean, does he know what good tennis looks like? Apparently. Well, they used Brad Gilbert as a consultant on this movie. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for it, even if it's not that great. And then the second film that's coming out is a 30 for 30 doc on Michael Chang called American Son. And it'll be directed by Jay Caspian Kang, who is a former writer for The New Yorker, New York Times, and a novelist. The last bit of business on this episode is a callback to last week's segment on Martina Navratilova. There was one thing that I wanted to add, and then I see it's kind of exploded into a bit more after you took your pen to it. There's always more things I want to say, you know? I just wanted to offer a reminder that sport is inherently unfair. And so when folks decry trans women participating in women's sport as being unfair or inherently unfair, that doesn't register with me. In tennis, are all the opportunities that were afforded Jesse Pagula because of her status as daughter of a fracking billionaire. Not not the fracking. Not the fracking. <laughs> Are all those opportunities fair compared to Venus and Serena and where they came from? Were they afforded everyone else? Like- and the fact is that the majority of people who make it to elite level sport come from a medium to large level of privilege. And when folks make it to that level from, say, Compton or wherever, you know the, the, the way it's talked about and how coded it can be, right? Yes. Then it becomes poverty porn. Mm-hmm. So there's two extremes. Then that's, that's your story, right? Your exactly. Cinderella story. You You're were, Francis you Tiafo whose father was the janitor and you slept in the, the stadium and you played on the court when nobody else was there. You were the caddy who carried the bag for nickels just so that you could pick up balls on the course and then play for the last 30 minutes before the sun went down. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. those are the two... Ex- that, I mean, sport is inherently unfair, so mm-hmm. miss me with all of that. I will I will push back a little and say that a lot of tennis's greatest champions have been working class or middle class. You think about Connors, Gonzalez, Navratilova. Okay. So many of the all-time yeah. greats, you know, did not come from money. But... Uh, where sort of the inequity comes in is they may have had powerful and wealthy national federations supporting them in some cases, you know, benefactors like Czechoslovakia, right? Like there are inequities, even if you don't come from money, of course, I do want to like, I think we should start from the position that women's sport is important and needs to be safeguarded, but this is not the way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's not uh, an imminent incoming invasion of trans women to destroy women's sport. Like, it, it's just not happening. And like you said, there are a lot of ways that athletes have, quote-unquote, unfair advantages over each other, whether it's Michael Phelps's incredible reach and unusual body by, you know, the normal scientific standards. Like There are a lot of men 
who get marveled at for their physiological superiority. Their, you know, the privileges that the way they're built affords them, right? right. Like for men, most often it's, oh my God, well, amazing. Look at that. So, oh, incredible. But when women display some of those characteristics that are uncharacteristic of the feminine ideal, then it becomes, let's turn the lens on them. Mm -hmm. We have to find out what's wrong with them. There must be an advantage that's unfair, right? And so that's when sports is medicalized. You know, we use technology to change the way that cis women perform and present. So this category of women that we've created doesn't fit all women. And so the the anti-trans movement wants to cement what it means to be a woman uh, using biological reality, right? But what happens when a biological or cis woman with XX chromosomes has features that you feel don't fit into the social category of woman? Christine Mboma is an example. She's a 19-year-old runner from Namibia. She is a cis woman. And based on new rules from world athletics, she will have to suppress her natural testosterone in order to be able to compete. She's a woman, because this stuff is so invasive, we know that she has XX chromosomes, right? There's no supposedly unfair advantage. She's not someone who's XXY or intersex. This is a woman who sports has decided does not fit the social category of woman. And we have we now have a a track record that this type of stuff disproportionately affects black women. Yes. The women who have been uh, penalized and medicalized under these sorts of rules are typically from Africa. Christine Mboma, Castro Semenya, Francine Neon Saba. And these are rules from World Athletics that were actually aimed at transgender athletes, and they have these unintended consequences for cis women. So you categorize people as, quote, athletes with differences of sexual development, DSD, and people categorized in this way have to undergo treatment to reduce their testosterone. So like we talked about last week, anti-trans movement always has consequences for cis women. Cis women will always be abused and harassed and medicalized when you legislate against trans people. And the harassment that will not stop anytime soon is when somebody like... Christina Mboma is running and they're being talked about, videos are being shared, the comments are all about their body and how they look mm-hmm. and how much of a man they are, that they look like men, that they are unfairly advantaged in this race. Like that is something that can you imagine living your life like that? Like you're <laughs> literally just trying to be the best athlete mm-hmm. that you can be. And millions of people know all of this private medical information about you. Nobody has suffered in that way like Castro Semenya. And again, like, we didn't really get into this on the last episode, but think about how the anti-trans movement integrates with white supremacy. This is not to say that all anti-trans activists are white supremacists, but the movements go hand in hand. White supremacy movement leverages anti-trans feelings. And you get situations where black women are seen as less than woman. Like this is always already racist. It's not a consequence of it. And part of my bringing up the sport is inherently unfair angle is that you will never be able to never be able to create an equal playing field. 
ever. No. And I, I it's agree. A, it's a myth. I think you should try. To, to a degree. <laughs> right. To where it doesn't hurt people. Mm-hmm. This is not it. Uh, on a more happy note, this uh, has to do with a trans woman doing amazing things mm-hmm. on our television. Sasha Colby, legend, icon, winner of Miss Continental, won RuPaul's Drag Race season 15. And wasn't it deserved? Uh, I mean, nobody... Flawless. Nobody is doing it like her. Nobody. The delusion that this was even close. Yeah. I mean, I thought this was a good a good season, not a great season. I thought the top four was correct. They were very talented, all of them. But Sasha is just operating like in a different stadium, a different planet from the rest of them. Her performance, her personality, her looks, like it's, she hits everything. Everything that RuPaul has decided is the standard to win Drag Race, she can do all of it. RuPaul has not always been uh, a friend to trans people. No. Uh, Previously, in some of the earlier seasons, and actually it's not that long ago. It's about five five or six years ago, RuPaul said that it's like trans women have an unfair advantage on drag race because, you know, they're already women. And it rang so false because the standards on drag race are you have to be a stand-up comedian, you have to be able to act, you have to be able to interview, you have to be able to market your your personality. Like, all of these things, it was always from the first season. I actually wrote a conference paper on RuPaul's Drag Race in grad school and presented it at a conference. Can you find it online? I don't think it wasn't published, no. Mm. Uh, but it was always about becoming this sort of queen of all media, creating this brand. And so RuPaul's Drag Race was never about female impersonation. It was never about how accurately are you presenting as a woman. That's not it, right? You don't need to be the realist, quote unquote, woman. Even ball culture has phased out realness as a category. Mm. It was always about finding the person with the most charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. Exactly. Period. So RuPaul's transphobia was really upsetting to a lot of people because there had been trans women on the show, some of whom came out on the show, but a lot of whom were not comfortable divulging that part of themselves. Uh, Kylie Sonique Love, she was not out as trans. I don't think on, I think it was season two. Two, I think, That she first, it was a long time ago. She won a recent All-Stars. She was incredible. And she won it as an out trans woman. Then, season 14, The Marvelous Willow Pill. The next, the first trans winner of a regular season. And now Sasha Colby. Did you get that chronology correct? Because you know the stands will yeah, be coming yeah. through. Yeah, it was Kylie, Willow, and then Sasha. Okay. And some of the uh, the other drag races from around the world have had trans winners before the U.S. one. You're talking about winners specifically because winners. there have been contestants who've come out yeah. prior to that. Monica Beverly Hills. I mean, Peppermint was, I believe she was out as a trans woman on season nine. There have been a bunch, but it shows you the diversity of drag culture, right? Like some drag queens are cis men. They identify as men. Some are trans women, like... Some of them are straight, apparently. Right? Some are trans men. Like, this is all part of the community and should be celebrated. And we salute Sasha Colby. What a performance. Thank you for listening to episode 299. Next episode is 300. We're planning a pretty 
nice celebration for it if you can get your shit together in yes, the next week. It's this on, is squarely it, on you. It's on me. But we are uh, really excited to pass the 300 mark. Mm-hmm. Triple century, all My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find everything body serve related at linktree.com slash the body serve. Uh, this Redbubble site, it's it's going down. Wow, like, you are really on one about that. I'm done I, with it. I think we are closing our Redbubble site, so we you will not be able to purchase merch from there for now. Um, we'll come up with a different solution. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, some they no. They changed it, their fees it's not and whatnot. Work. It's like they're taking 40% on top of the already only 20% that we make on a sale. Like that, That's crazy. Yeah, maybe we'll set up a little shop on our dining room table. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank, Thank you. Mikey. Thank you very much.